You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Luke. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn there now. We're in Luke chapter 21. And uh, Lord, we just pray as we come to your word, especially just a chapter that's, that can be controversial and cause dissension. Uh, but Lord, we want to just faithfully teach the word faithfully. And we don't want to skip around passages, even though they might be difficult. But we want to roll up our sleeves and get into it. And Lord, we cry out for help to understand. Lord, for, for insight into your word. You're the one that wrote it, Lord. And you're the one that was there on the Mount of Olives speaking it. And so speak to us this morning. Give us understanding. We just come humbly before you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And as we get into Luke chapter 21, actually the second week in this study, we're at a part of the Gospels called the Olivet Discourse, uh, where Jesus went onto the Mount of Olives with four of his disciples and gave them a, a sermon basically about the end times. And so the Olivet Discourse is a study on eschatology or the study of end times. And we really did an in-depth intro study to this discourse last Sunday. And if you weren't here, I just encourage you to get on our website, download the study or listen to it right offline. Uh, it'll, it'll give you a lot of help as we get into this passage. But when it comes to eschatology, something I want you to, to, to drill into your heart uh, when it comes to eschatology, the study of end times, it's so important not to become unduly dogmatic or argumentative about what prophecies, what these prophecies could mean. Because of undue dogmatism, there's been much division within the church and many arguments that have gotten heated and, and have turned to fleshly debates and so I've, I've been one of those guys as I've loved prophecy and studied it a lot. I've found myself in the past just kind of making fun of people that would hold other positions than me. And just as I'm now, you know, a pastor, I just really have been humbled by the Lord to come to the text with humility and show some different views on it. And I'll share a little bit throughout the next couple of weeks what my understanding of some of the text is. And you can take it or leave it, but I encourage you in all things, search the scriptures. Okay, you know, we're all reasonable people, we're all sensible people, and we've all got Bibles. So let's use them, huh? Let's use them for ourselves. And uh, so as we get into the Olivet Discourse, the purpose of this discourse is to awaken us, to slap us and pour cold water on our face, to get us to wake up and to look up for Jesus's coming to await our master's return. There's a story about the British explorer, Sir Ernest Shackleton, and how he went down on an expedition to the South Pole. After spending much time down there, he had to leave a few men on Elephant Island to go get supplies. He promised that he would return later. However, when he returned to go back, there were huge icebergs that blocked his way. And suddenly, as if by a miracle, an avenue opened up through the ice and he was able to go back on a rescue mission for his men. His men were all ready and waiting. So the second the ship hit the island shore, the men jumped on board and they immediately set off to go home. Contemplating their narrow escape, Sir Shackleton said to his men, It's very fortunate that you are all packed and ready to go when I came back. And they replied, We never gave up hope. Whenever the sea looked clear of ice, we rolled up our sleeping bags and reminded each other, The boss may come today. And as the hymn writer Horatius Bonar exhorted us, to be ready for the last moment by being ready at every moment. We should be looking up hourly, minutely, excitedly, anxiously awaiting our Lord's return. In a couple of weeks, we'll finally get to the verse. But in Matthew chapter 24, verse 42, Jesus says, watch 
For you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. And the evil servant says in his heart, my master delays his coming. He's not coming today. He's not coming tomorrow. He'll probably never come during my lifetime. It's a wicked servant that says that in their hearts. We need to be looking up and discerning the signs of the times. So the Olivet Discourse is a glass of cold water on our face to wake us up to his coming. But it's also an encouragement to persevere through trials and persecution that we come across in this world. You'll remember last week, I gave you some end times vocabulary words. Okay, so hopefully you've remembered them this week. I'm going to give them again just real quick and breeze through them. But the first vocab word is the word rapture. Gets thrown a lot, you know, around the church. Some of you have bumper stickers, you know, that say, I break for the rapture, you know, or, you know, in case of rapture, this car could be unmanned or uh, in case of rapture, my mother-in-law might be driving this car. I don't know. But uh, my mother-in-law was here for service and I didn't use that one because uh, don't tell her. But the rapture uh, is the, the moment when the church is caught up in the clouds to meet Jesus in the air. Okay, it comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 through 18, when Paul tells the Thessalonians that there will be a day when the church will be caught up is the phrase that is used. And it's the Greek word harpazo, okay? Harpazo, which means to snatch up or catch away by force. But I heard someone else say in the Latin form of that word, which is raptus. And a man came up to me last week and he goes, Roar, isn't it crazy how uh, like we call vultures raptors. And why do we call them that? Because they snatch up the little mice, you know, or the, the, the prey. And uh, that's exactly what happens in the rapture, that the church will be caught up in the clouds to meet Jesus in the air. First Corinthians 15 tells us, you know, it's a mystery and it, you know, it definitely takes some, some studying to even begin to comprehend the rapture. But in a moment, we will be changed. It'll take place in the twinkling of an eye. So the rapture, when the church is caught up to meet Jesus, where? In the air. Vocab word number two was tribulation, which speaks of a catastrophic event. The Bible calls the tribulation Jacob's troubles or Jacob's sorrows. Or next week we'll get in depth into that it's called Daniel's 70th week. And what it is, is the tribulation, a seven year period where God pours out his wrath on a Christ rejecting world. Remember that uh, destruction is going to be worse than anything the world had ever seen or ever will see, and unless the Lord was merciful, Matthew chapter 24 says, and he stops this wrath, which he does, uh, that no flesh would survive. It's going to be that that brutal, that harsh. Daniel chapter 9 tells us that the tribulation is, in verse 24, you read that it's for Israel and for the holy city, that they might come to know Jesus as the Messiah finally. It's really a time that wakes them up that they missed the Messiah, they crucified the Messiah. And Daniel tells us that the tribulation will finish sin, it will make an end of sins for Israel, that iniquity will be reconciled, that righteousness will be brought to Israel, vision and prophecy will be sealed up, and then finally, the most holy will finally be anointed by Israel. So this period of wrath is going to draw Israel to their knees uh, to come and finally realize that it was Jesus the whole time. They'll look on him whom they pierced, Zechariah tells us, and mourn for him like they would mourn for their only child. And so, as we dig into the Olivet Discourse, oh, I'm sorry, I missed one word, uh, um, the word millennium, which uh, it speaks of when Jesus comes back during the, I missed two words, I'm sorry, totally we go back just a hair. Uh, second coming, okay? You're taking notes. The second coming is when Jesus comes back to the earth and sets his feet on the Mount of Olives. 
Uh, He judges the world and he sets up his kingdom here on the earth for a thousand years. Okay, now we remember the first coming was when? When Jesus came the first time as a little baby in a manger and he grew up, you know, here on the world. Uh, But the second coming is when he'll come back to the earth again. Now, some people believe that as Jesus is coming back during the second coming, that the rapture will happen during that point. The church will meet Jesus in the air then, and then they'll come to the earth. Some people believe that before the tribulation, the rapture will happen. Some people believe it's in the middle. Lots of different views. A lot of people that love Jesus hold to different views of that. Um, I personally believe in a pre-tribulation rapture that Jesus will take his bride from the earth and, and protect them from the wrath to come. I think there's scripture that backs that up. And um, that's just my stance on it. And uh, in, in the future, we'll talk more in depth on that. But in the Olivet Discourse here in Luke chapter 21, look at verse 5. It says that some spoke of the temple. They're finally here in Jerusalem. It's Passion Week. It's the day before he's going to be betrayed by Judas Iscariot. And here they are at the temple. And some of the disciples are speaking about it, how it's adorned with beautiful stones and donations And he said, these things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. We did an in-depth study on this last week, but basically the boys were just the disciples. Sometimes I call them the boys, you know, they were so astounded by this incredible religious building with all of the gold and all of the religious looking men and all the money that was being donated. And they said, Jesus, isn't this incredible? Look at all the buildings. And Jesus was disgusted with the empty religion that was happening there. And he says, you know what? You see all this? The day will come when one, not one stone will be left upon another. Now, most people say, oh, not possible. I mean, surely no one would destroy this again, even though it had already happened before. And sure enough, when Rome invaded uh, Jerusalem, uh, a torch was tossed into the temple. The temple was lit on fire. A billion dollars worth of gold melted between this, this temple stone cracks. And so the Romans had to chisel away the gold and toss the stones away until the whole temple was completely destroyed. Prophecy fulfilled there in 70 A.D. Now, when the disciples heard this, that the temple was going to be destroyed, they were flabbergasted. You know, that meant the end of Judaism as they knew it. And to them, really, the end of the world. And so they asked these questions. Verse 7, they said to him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what sign will there be that these things are about to take place? And then Matthew's gospel tells us they had one more question. And when will be the end of the age? So these three questions by Peter, James, John, and Andrew that prompt a two-chapter-long answer. That's why it's called the Olivet Discourse rather than the part of it discourse. And so um, let's just read the Bible here. Uh, yeah, it's all of it. There's huge explanation about the end times here. And we do a great disservice to ourselves by skipping over it. Now, as they ask for the signs of the times, we want to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. And if you you don't want to flip there, just maybe close your eyes and listen the best that you can. Where Paul tells the Thessalonians, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. That's an important thing to underline there, that it's going to be like labor pains coming upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. We're not in darkness as Christians. We have the scriptures that we can search and examine, and we have the words of Jesus that we can compare to what's happening today and in history to see, well, when is this going to happen? We're not in the darkness, guys. We're in the light. 
And if we do some studying, there's a lot of encouragement that can come to us. You know, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees and called them hypocrites because they asked for a sign. And Jesus said, you guys, you know how to look at the sky and see what the day is going to be like, especially if you're a sailor, you know, red at night, sailor's delight, red in the morning, sailor take warning. You know, we all know that sweet little rhyme, you know, but he says, but when it comes to Bible prophecy, you're ignorant, man, let's not be ignorant. Let's look at the signposts, the signs of the times. And so that's exactly what we're going to do today. We're going to look at these birth pangs as in a pregnant woman, how they start out tiny, barely noticeable. Oh, I might be pregnant, you know? And then as time goes on, oh my goodness, you're getting large, you know? And did you swallow a watermelon seed? Because I don't know what that is in there, you know? And finally movement and pushing and finally intense pain, my sciatic nerve, you know? And hurry, get the car. Let's go to the hospital. Uh, It all started really tiny, but works out to be so huge. And so let's look at verse eight, which is the first sign. Uh, And we studied this last week, so we won't spend too much time in it. But he said, Take heed that you do not be deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time has drawn near, therefore do not go after them. So the first sign is that antichrists will come on the scene, or in place of Christ is what antichrists mean. We we always kind of think of, you know, the guy with horns and weird you know, pictures and all of this, but really what antichrist means in place of Christ and men who are going to come on the scene saying, I'm Jesus. And I gave you a whole bunch of examples of how that's even happening today in America. Men saying that they're Jesus come again. Don't believe them guys. Don't be deceived. Now, as we go through these signs, I want you to flip over to revelation chapter six, and I want you to keep your finger there. Okay. Because it's interesting that the seal judgments, these are the first judgments right at the beginning of the tribulation, directly correlate to uh, the Olivet Discourse, okay? And if you look in Revelation chapter 6, just look at verse 1 and 2. It says, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked and behold a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. And so the very first seal, what I believe is at the beginning of the tribulation is this man coming out who most of us would say it's Jesus. He's on a white horse and he just looks so righteous and he's conquering and to conquer. It must be Jesus. No, guys, it's a guy who's in place of Jesus. He's trying to take Jesus's place. And really, I believe he's the Antichrist that the prophecies speak of in the end times. But notice some things about him. He is on a white horse. He does have some appearances that would cause people to think that he's God. But notice he has a bow and no arrows. Notice he has a crown, which is a Stephanos, a temporary crown made out of leaves on his head. He's been given power for a temporary period of time. But the point is he goes out, scripture tells us, Revelation, the book of Daniel, uh, Matthew chapter 24, we know that this guy is going out to deceive the nations. What does that mean for us? It means that as the time draws near, there will be more and more and more antichrists until finally there's an antichrist. And we need to know the scriptures. We need to constantly be testing things according to the word of God. Don't even believe what I tell you. I beg you to be a Berean and search the scripture for yourselves. Especially if I tell you that I'm Jesus. Then we've got some major issues and feel free to grab some rocks and just put me out of my misery because... That's what really should happen. So the first seal, we did a big study on it last week and and the first um, sign. And so we'll move on to the second one in verses nine and 10. Keep your finger there in Revelation. You'll need it for later. But the second sign in verses nine and 10, but when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified for these things must come to pass first but the end will not come immediately. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So this second sign of Jesus's coming is an increase of wars and commotion, 
which speaks of instability and confusion among the nations. But Matthew's gospel goes on to say, and rumors of wars. So one of the little labor pains, you know, uh, will be war. But finally, it's just going to it's going to blow us out of the water of how much war there was. Now, look at Revelation chapter six, verse three, and we'll just compare the second seal with the second sign. It says, when you open the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. So this guy that comes to take peace from the, the earth, there's major warfare taking place. And Jesus says, you know, don't be afraid of these wars. It will come to pass, but not yet. In other words, you know, we've always had little skirmishes, little wars, little battles. They've always taken place. In fact, only 8% of recorded history has ever been totally at peace. That's not very much, but it's never been like it's been the last 100 years. Two Russian military men studied military conflict, and they told us that the 12th century had 2,678 conflicts. In the first 25 years of the 19th century, the 1900s, there were 12,835. That's a massive jump. In fact, in the 1900s, a hundred million people were killed in war. That's a, a massive jump there. Especially today, we look at the nuclear age that we're living in. How now war isn't fought with bows and arrows and stabbing guys with knives, but it's fought by the megaton with nuclear bombs. One bomb has more destructive power than both sides had in the World War II. Now we've got Iran and Ahmadinejad, or, sorry, I haven't worked on that name, you know, saying that they have enriched uranium and the capability to enrich it. They could make a nuclear weapon if they wanted to. North Korea and Russia, they're all very dangerous with their n- nuclear capacity. One professor from Harvard said that if a 20 megaton nuke bomb hit Toronto, that one millisecond later it would put a hole the size of a skyscraper in the ground and had, it would have heat the temperature of the sun, killing 100 million people immediately. Um, if you want to wonder what a nuclear bomb would do on a local level, there's a website out there uh, where you can drop nuclear bombs on any town that you want. So I did. Dropped it on Prineville. I'm not going to tell you what house I dropped it on. But you better be nice. Um, you can drop all sorts of different little bombs. It's kind of fun. No, it's not. Um, just one If a little boy bomb like the one used on Hiroshima was dropped in Prineville, it would wipe out all of Prineville completely. Boom, like that. That would be the crater the size of Prineville. Prineville would be gone. But if you were to drop the new SAR bomb, a Russian bomb, on Prineville, all of Bend, Redmond, Prineville, Madras, and a good portion of the Deschutes National Forest would be, would be the crater of this one bomb. You know, as Jesus is telling the disciples this, that, you know, there's going to be these labor pains and it's going to get worse and worse and worse towards the end of, before I come back. They, they just can't comprehend, you know, wars and rumors of wars like what Syria, you know, or, or Egypt or, you know, my backyard, you know, but they can't comprehend how massive these attacks could be. If you look at Babylon's destruction in Revelation, it appears to be some sort of nuclear destruction. And so it's just interesting. The reason why I give you these facts, and I'll give you some more, uh, it's just to say, wow, the word of the Lord is true. What he said will come to pass. And I say, come Lord, come quickly. Come and rescue us from this. It causes us to look up. It causes us to realize the signposts. You know, have you ever noticed if you've driven to San Francisco or, you know, how a couple hundred miles away you might get one sign. And then as you get closer, you get the signposts get closer and closer until finally it's like five miles, three miles, two miles. You know, the signposts get nearer and nearer. That's exactly what happens with Bible prophecy. The signs get more uh, close. And so look at there in verse 11. 
It says, and there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences. And there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. So let's just look at some of these here. We've got, Jesus says, one of those signposts will be famine. And if you look at Revelation chapter 6, you see that the third seal is that of famine. Uh, It says there in verse 5, Behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. So a quart of wheat was about enough for a family to eat. And a denarius was a day's wage. So basically, you're going to use all of what you work for today just to feed your family. You won't have money for anything else. But if you wanted to, you could buy three quarts of barley. It's a little bit cheaper for that day's wage. But don't harm the oil and the wine or those who live in luxury. They won't be affected at this first part of this famine. And so famine will be on the rise. In 1970, three scientists, Paul Ehrlich was one of them, said that the 1970s had begun the age of the famine. And if you look at it now, a third of the world is well-fed, a third of the world is poorly fed, and a third of the world is starving to death. In fact, it's projected that in 2010, 22,184,000 people will starve of death this year. That's 63,000 a day or 43 people per minute. I mean, it's just on a, on a grand scale that this is happening. What adds to the famine? Well, rising oil prices, uh, the pollution and the acid rain making quality of the food not what it used to be. And something that adds to the famine is population explosion. If you look at countries like India that have just exploded with people. If you look from the flood, Noah's Ark, until 1850, right before the Civil War, it took that long for the world to get to a billion people. Then from uh, 1930, or 1850 to 1930, to get another billion people. Then from 1930 to 1960, in just 30 years, the world grew another billion to three billion people. Then from 1960 to 1975, just 15 years gave us another billion. We got to 4 billion people. And now in 2010, we're roughly 6,700,000,000 people. So just in the last 120, 130 years, there's huge population explosion, which increases the famine drastically. Jesus also says that pestilence will increase. And a result of famine and war is this pestilence, these diseases. In America, we have one doctor for every 572 people. In East Asia, they have one doctor for every 2,000 people. And in Africa, they have one doctor for 17,000 people. There's a huge population explosion and no doctors to treat these people. So pestilence is on the rise. Webster's defines pestilence as a contagious or infectious epidemic or disease that is virulent and devastating and that can resist treatment. And you look just in the last 30 years to what AIDS has done to this world. It wasn't until the early 1980s that AIDS was even discovered amongst gay men. Now, the reason I say that is because sin is greatly increasing as well and immorality, and that's causing death. The wages of sin is death. United Nations AIDS research estimates that 32.9 million people living with AIDS worldwide, um, that there are 32.9 right now, that went up 4 million people a year since 2001. It's just growing like, you know, like a plague is growing like a pestilence. So Jesus says, you know, there's going to be false Christ and uh, famine and war and pestilence. And then he says there that earthquakes in various or diverse places. Now imagine again, the disciples hearing this earthquakes, man, there's going to be more earthquakes, you know, where in Galilee, you know, the, the Golan Heights or... You know, where? They wouldn't have known if there would have been earthquakes in various places. 
But now, for one thing, we're able to tell, yeah, there's earthquakes all over. We've just witnessed a 7.0 earthquake in Haiti where 217,000 people have died. It's a country that, you know, experienced an earthquake in the 40s. And then before that, it was the, the 1800s. They just never get earthquakes there. If you look at the birth pangs, how, of course, we've always had earthquakes in the world, but the ninth century, there was one major recorded earthquake, okay? Uh, The 11th century recorded two. The 13th century recorded three. 16th recorded two. 17th recorded two. 19th century recorded nine earthquakes. And the 20th century recorded 40 major earthquakes, And then from 1950 on, the number of earthquakes doubles every 10 years. Birth pangs. You know, while it's fun to give you all these facts and crazy figures and stuff, I mean, that's interesting, definitely interesting. But what matters is that God's word is truth. What matters is that these birth pangs are getting closer together and more intense and more frequent. And it would be so foolish of us to say, my master delays his coming. I refuse to look at the signs of the time. I refuse to get my life right with Jesus. He's not coming today. He's not coming tomorrow. I don't need to live all out wholeheartedly with reckless abandon for him because I've got the rest of my life to live. And on my deathbed, then maybe I'll get right with him. We don't have the time. That's foolishness to say that. Jesus could come today. You know, soon and very soon, as the old song goes, we are going to see the king. Another song, you know, I love, people get ready. Jesus is coming. Soon we'll be going home. First John chapter three says that, man, he who has this hope in himself purifies himself just as he is pure that we might not be ashamed at his coming. Man, waiting for the imminent return of Christ brings a purity to our lives. Knowing that my master could come back at any second. Non-Christians who have studied uh, earthquakes, non-Christian geologists, have talked about earthquakes going in cycles of birth pangs of a woman, both in intensity and frequency. It's almost as if they'd read the scriptures, you know, that, oh my goodness, this is crazy. It's getting worse and worse and worse. If you look at the um, fourth seal there in Revelation, so look at verse seven. The fourth seal talks about a pale horse and actually verse eight. And the name of him who sat on it was death and Hades followed with them. So if you ever run across two guys named Death and Hades riding on horses, uh, run the other direction. Those are two bad hombres. Um, But notice power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. So this is just a period like the world has never seen where a fourth of the world is ravaged by death. Different hunger, sword, death. And notice beasts of the earth. It's interesting, you know, if you study that right now there's supposedly, you know, studies say there's 2 billion Christians on the earth. Okay, I don't, I don't know if I completely believe that. Some people say they're Christians and they probably aren't. And, you know, but let's just say for, our, for conversation, there's 2 billion Christians on the earth. Let's say the rapture is a pre-trib rapture. And, uh, Two billion people suddenly vanish from the earth. Okay? So then let's say, you know, a certain number of people die during that that period for whatever reason. Uh, And then we've got a quarter of the world wiped out because of these two bad hombres. That leaves three billion people on the earth. So we've gone from 6.7 to roughly three billion people on the earth in a matter of months, probably. Crazy devastation like the world has never seen. Uh, now at this point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has given us these signs to look for that they'll be increasing. They'll be getting heavier. And this is where he says, all of these things are the beginning of sorrows or they're the beginning of the birth pangs. They're the first set of judgments in revelation. So that would be an interesting reason why Jesus would call them the, the beginning of these sorrows. In fact, the tribulation is called Jacob's sorrows. 
So interesting that these are the beginning of, of the beginning of the tribulation. And then if you look at verse 12 there in Luke chapter 20, it says, but before all these things, now I want you to underline that phrase before all these things, because we're talking about the the beginning of birth pangs. And one of the things that kind of makes the Olivet Discourse confusing is the telescoping lens of the text. You know, it kind of is talking about before what the tribulation would be. It could be after. Here's the second coming. And this is something that may look like the rapture. Um, scholars kind of call the, the telescoping lens of the text. There's different camera angles. And so right now we're told, okay, before all of these signs happen... They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. So before the tribulation, the apostles, the disciples, and the church are going to go through some persecution. You know, Jesus is basically saying the Jew will come after you for blaspheming. And the Gentile will come after you for your narrow-mindedness and because you refuse to join them. And it's interesting, as you look at the end of Luke and then get into the beginning of Acts, we see that this is exactly what happens. Got a bunch of men that love Jesus going around telling everybody about him and getting beaten up and scourged and stoned and drug out of cities and spat upon and, and martyred. And it's interesting that Acts chapter 4 verse 12, which says, There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved than the name of Jesus Christ, leads to two chapters in Acts immediately full of floggings and stonings for the name of Jesus. And so Jesus is saying, hey, before all these things take place, you're going to go through persecution. You know, and... and uh, we know that persecution is it's something that the Christians go through, but you know what? It also is like a birth pain. You know, the early church, we would say, suffered most of the persecution the church has ever seen. Guys, there is persecution on a major scale in the church today. I woke up really early this morning and went on uh, the Voice of the Martyrs website. If you've never been on that website, go to it, persecution.org. And I was just blown away that country after country had news headlines. Pastor martyred in Colombia. Church in China raided and burned to the ground. Attendance of it, you know, beaten. You know, two women in Iran in prison for months and, and were starving. They weren't fed. You know, just Somalia, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iraq, you know, all over the world. Christians are being tortured and killed for the name of Jesus. On a grand scale. You know, it may be a matter of time before we here in America begin to taste some of that. You know, start losing some of our religious freedoms. But verse 13 through 15 tell us that this will all turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. All of this persecution, it's going to be an awesome opportunity for you to be a witness for my name. Verse 14, therefore, settle it in your hearts. Okay, you guys, this is for you today. Settle it in your hearts, not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. What encouraging words from Jesus. So often we, we worry about what we're going to say. You know, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm not strong enough. Hey, the key verse of Acts, we're going to get into it. Chapter 1, verse 8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be witnesses or martyrs for me throughout the world. And it's interesting, as you read Fox's book of martyrs, or that book that Jesus Freaks, or DC Talk put out called Jesus Freaks, how these little boys and girls and teenagers and soldiers in the Russian army, they would all be tortured for Jesus. And for some reason, they just had this incredible strength to, while they're, while they're burning at the stake or being 
having a three foot by three foot brick wall put around them to where they die of claustrophobia. You know, every one of them was super bold. Some of them preaching while they were burning at the stake. One man, as he was a Scottish man, as he was burnt at the stake, began preaching during the, and the, they couldn't get the fire lit at the stake. And as he preached and he preached and he preached, they couldn't get the fire lit. Finally, the fire starts going. He's still preaching. So they shove a spear through his heart and water puts out all of the fire and he's able to keep preaching. What could make a man do that? He's a man with a nature just like us, but he's got the power of the Holy Spirit giving him boldness, giving him the words. And actually, if you read the gospel, there's three different ways that the Holy Spirit is going to use our mouths as a witness during these times of persecution. There in Luke, we just read, I'll give you a mouth in verse 15 and wisdom, which all of your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. I'll give you a mouth. And then Mark chapter 13 tells us that, you know, don't worry about what you're going to say But whatever is given to you in that hour, speak that. For it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. You know, that's that's another way the Holy Spirit does it, is he's the one that's actually speaking through you. And I can testify to those times. There's been a lot of times in my life where God said, go and share Jesus with that person. I don't know what to say. I'm so scared. I can't remember any scripture right now. Go do it. Okay. And just open up your mouth and let the Lord move your tongue. Let the Holy Spirit do the speaking. Later on, or earlier in Luke, Jesus said, you know, don't worry about what you're going to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what to say. So he'll either speak it through you or teach you or, you know, give you the wisdom. He's going to, he's not going to let you down. You know, he's going to be there with you. And Paul said in Ephesians, pray for me that I might open my mouth like I ought to. I love that he uses that word. I ought to open my mouth about Jesus. Pray for me. Even Paul needed prayer for this. You know, that I might make known the mystery of the gospel. We studied on Wednesday night how in Acts chapter 18, Paul was in Corinth and things were getting tough and a little bit of persecution going on. Paul was afraid. And Jesus appeared to him in a vision and said, don't be afraid for I am with you, but speak the words I give you. He didn't say, I don't worry about it. The people can watch your life and your life can be a testimony. Well, that's true. It's not only our life that's a testimony. It's our tongues that are testimony. He said, keep speaking, keep opening that mouth. Every one of us guys, from the least of us to the greatest of us are to be living testimonies, living epistles with open mouths. And don't worry about what you're going to say. Check out an example of this. You know, if you're delivered up, Jesus says you're going to be delivered up to kings. Look at Acts chapter 26, verse 24, and watch Paul in action. Watch Paul in action before this king where no doubt he's brought out to this. I've been to this amphitheater in in Israel and he's brought out in chains and, and just goes and stands before this massive amphitheater where Herod and Herod's wife and Festus, uh, they would sit right there and, uh, and, and, whether watch concerts or listen to prisoners speak. And and here Paul gives his defense. Acts chapter 26, verse 24. Says, now as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. You're crazy. But he said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things. For I'm convinced that none of these things escapes his attention. Since this thing was not done in a corner, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. <laughs> Man, talk about boldness in the, front, in the front of royalty. I know that you believe. I know you believe the prophets. You're crazy. I'm not crazy. And you know I'm not crazy. Man, Paul, you're getting fired up. You almost persuade me. Please, God, I'm trying to persuade you. 
Man, I know that Paul didn't have it all figured out. I know that Paul didn't have the wisdom of words. He tells us that. He said, we didn't come with wisdom of words, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's encouraging to me, guys, because I get scared too when the occasion for testimony comes along. But don't worry about what you're going to say. As we just work through, uh, Matthew's gospel adds, adds some some more to the Olivet Discourse. Matthew 24, verse 11. It says, Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. So one of the signs of the times, and, and it's happening now, it's something that's going to get worse and worse, false prophets rising up and deceiving many. Listen to what Paul told Timothy. I know we've been doing a lot of flipping lately, and, and we will be, but I'll try to make it easy on you guys. Listen to what he says. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. You know, there's sometimes when the Bible says, you know, hey, you know, this is a nice little truth, and this is a nice little truth, and we can take that. But when the Bible says, behold, you know, or check it out, you know, maybe it doesn't use those words exactly, but when the Spirit expressly says something, then we need to really listen. That in the end times, which we're kind of establishing that the birth pangs are getting worse, uh, some are going to fall away from the faith. And listen to what Second Peter, and if you want to flip to Second Peter chapter 2, or you can just listen, but, but uh, verse 1 it says, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you or make merchandise of you. With deceptive words, for a long time their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. And so, birth pangs, it's happened a little bit, but as we get nearer, it's going to happen more. And what do we do about that? We read this baby. We keep it near to us at all times. We test all things. Don't even believe what I tell you. I give you permission, okay? It's kind of weird when somebody tells you that. Don't believe what I'm telling you. Look it up for yourself. Know your Bibles. Carry the sword of the Spirit into the battle with you. Own it. Know it. Know the chapter and the verse, my friends. Because... False prophets are going to rise and deceive many. Verse 12, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Peter goes on to say, they will speak great swelling words of emptiness, these false prophets. They allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who've actually escaped from those who live in error. For if after they've escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for you or for them to have not known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it is as it happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Man, we got to be on guard. Got to check ourselves. Hebrews tells us to examine yourself daily to see whether you're of the faith. Examine, encourage, sharpen one another with the word. Still there in Matthew chapter 24 Verse 13, he who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. So verse 
14 kind of, you know, it's one of those that people don't really know what to do with. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. There's a couple ways to look at this. Some people believe that the church must usher in the kingdom or usher in the end times by preaching the gospel to every nation and every person. An encouraging thing about that is that there's a, a um, organization out there called Wycliffe Bible Translators. Have you guys ever heard of them? I have a friend who's a Wycliffe Bible Translator. If you have a love for languages, give them a call. They'll hook you up. But uh, they go throughout the whole world trying to put a Bible in every nation's hand. And since 1942, they've translated the Bible into 740 languages. They still have a long way to go, but um, that's encouraging, you know. Uh, you know, so some people believe that, but if you look at it, the end coming, the context being the second coming or the end of the times, if you read revelation, there are angels that go around to the whole world, heralding the gospel and, and asking people to turn from their sins. Kind of an interesting time on earth where people are seeing angels and seeing demons and crazy stuff happening. But these angels flying around pleading with people to repent of their sins and come to Jesus. But men won't because of their hard hearts. I don't have the, the answer to that, you know. Could it be? Hey, I just keep sharing Jesus with everybody, you know. Maybe I'll save the last person that needs to get saved, you know, before Jesus could come back. In fact, Romans tells us, chapter 11, that uh, blindness has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. You know, is it possible that, that God won't let the tribulation happen where God's dealing with Israel, bringing Israel back to himself until there's that one Gentile, man or woman, if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. And, and once they get saved, boom, you know, the rapture of the church, boom, the end of the age. So I ask you, are you that person today? <laughs> are you the one holding the Lord from coming back? Get saved today. Come to Jesus. And so as we just wrap up today, let's just look back in Luke. <clears throat> look at verse 16, chapter 21. It says, you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Isn't that interesting? You know, Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. You know, mother's going to fight against son. Son's going to fight against mother. Mother-in-law is going to fight against daughter-in-law. We all know that that already happens. But, you know, uh, people are going to fight against each other because Jesus, you know, people don't want to bow the knee to Jesus. He's an offense to most people. Mothers are going to betray their sons and vice versa. Verse 17, you will be hated by all for my name's sake but not a hair of your head shall be lost. You know, we can't take that to think that you won't die because he already tells them you're going to be betrayed up to death. Uh, but man, we know that there's a, an eternal security for those that endure. And then look at verse 19. By your patience, possess your souls. Or as the ESV puts it, by your endurance, you gain your lives. And if you read Revelation chapter 2 and 3, it's called the church age. Those seven letters to the seven churches. And each one of them is told, if you will endure, I'll give you a reward. If you endure, if you don't deny my name, I'll give you a reward. Man, endure. There's such encouragement in this chapter to endure the persecution. Open your mouths and endure the persecution. And that's where we'll close today and we'll have the worship team come back up. And, and just as we have examined those signs, the signposts, there's such an encouragement to us for holy living. You know, we don't know the day or the hour. The wicked servant says in his heart, my master delays his coming. And just as Stuart strums and we can just bow our heads and close our eyes, 
Just listen to what Peter says here. He says, but beloved, do not forget this one thing. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all those things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? And Lord, because we know you're coming soon, we're just spurred on towards holiness, godly living, purity. Lord, when we get wrapped up in our days and our schedules and our jobs and so easy to just operate in the flesh, Lord, slap us, awaken us to look up that we might say like John at the end of the book of Revelation, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. We long to see your face. And maybe you're here today and you came through these doors into this place having never bowed the knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Having never accepted the forgiveness that comes through his blood. I tell you the same thing that Peter said. Salvation is found in no other name but the name of Jesus. And if you'll just surrender your life to him today, you can be saved. Saved from the wrath to come, the Bible tells us. Saved from eternity in hell. But saved from yourself and the bondage of your sin. Today you can be made a new creation in Christ Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have been made new. I plead with you today, come to Jesus. Receive him into your heart. Receive the forgiveness of sins. You came into this place with dirty garments on, blackened by sin, blackened by your own righteousness. But today, you can put on white robes of righteousness, cleansed by Jesus. And I beg you, like Paul begged Festus, receive him today. Is there anybody that would like to do that? You can just lift up your hand right now. Say, Rory, just pray for me. Just hearing about how Jesus is coming soon and that I might look into his eyes Man, I look at myself and I say, I am not ready for that. Just lift up your hand right now and I'll pray for you. I'll pray that you could be saved from your sin. It's possible today. Lord, do a saving work in this room. Heal those that are just trapped in bondage and sin and iniquity and the enemy just has a hold on their life. Bring freedom like they've never known. You can just surrender to Jesus in this last song. Man, if you want to raise up your hand and just, Lord, that's me. Maybe you want to come forward and surrender. Just come forward. We could have people come pray for you. Maybe you're a Christian here and you just know, man, even as a Christian, I'm not ready to look my Lord in the eye. 
Man, I do things at home that I don't want him to catch me doing. Man, just confess that to him. Allow him to cleanse you. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Why don't we stand and we'll just close with a song. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County or to contribute to this ministry, check out our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com or you may write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thank you for listening and God bless.